Welcome back to Books at Bedtime. My name is Tyler, and we are going to be continuing with The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. I'd like to um, give a little shout-out, wave hello, I guess, to all my listeners. Um, my analytics do show me uh, a little bit of where people are listening from. So, um, good evening to all my listeners across the United States, and... Um, those of you in Canada, I know I've got some listeners out there in Great Britain. Uh, my condolences on this trying time for you, you guys. Um, as your nation's ruler, um, changes as the seasons do. Um, but not without sadness. Um... And then uh, I know I have some listeners across Europe and uh, some across Asia, even. Um, looking at you, India. Good evening to you as well. And then, um, let's see, I believe uh, I have listeners in New Zealand as well. Um, if I haven't mentioned uh, your, your country of origin or continent, perhaps, um, know that uh, you are one of the special outliers who is uh, just just starting to get on the map. Um, I believe I might have a couple in South America. I think one in Argentina, maybe? Anyway, um, maybe somebody in, in... I think there was one listener in Chile. Um, all right, well, um, welcome all and any visitors who are new that I haven't mentioned. Um, oh, I, I believe I might have had, I think I had a listener in Nigeria, uh, so welcome to you as well. Uh, anyway, back into the book. You're not here to listen to me ramble on. You're here to, well, you are here to listen to me ramble on, but you're mostly here for me to read. So, I suppose you're wondering what happens next to our dear Foth. All right, chapter 60, Fortune. The next day I went to the admissions lottery, sporting my very first hangover. Weary and vaguely nauseous, I joined the shortest line and tried to ignore the din of hundreds of students milling about, buying, selling, trading, and generally complaining about the slots they'd drawn for their exams. Quoth Arladin's son, I said, when I finally arrived at the front of the line. The bored-looking woman... Uh, marked my name, and I drew a tile out of the black velvet bag. It read, Hapton, noon, five days from now, plenty of time to prepare. But as I turned back to the muse, a thought occurred to me. How much preparation did I really need? More importantly, how much could I genuinely accomplish without access to the archives? Thinking it over, I raised my hand over my head with my middle finger and thumb extended, signaling that I had a slot for five days from now. Uh, that I was willing to sell. It wasn't long before an unfamiliar student wandered close. Fourth day, she said, holding up her own tile, I'll give you a jot to trade. I shook my head. She shrugged and wandered away. Galvin, a relar from the Medica, um, approached me. He held up his index finger, indicating he had a slot later this afternoon. From the circles under his eyes and his anxious expression, uh, I didn't think he was eager to go through testing that soon. Will you take five jots? I'd like to get a whole talent. 
He nodded, flipping his own tile over between his fingers. It was a fair price. No one wanted to go through admissions on the first day. Maybe later. I'll look around a little first. As I watched him leave, I marveled at the difference a single day could make. Yesterday, five jots would have seemed like all the money in the world, but today my purse was heavy. I was lost in vague musings about how much money I had actually earned last night when I saw Willem and Simon approaching. Willem looked a little pale under his dark sealedish complexion. I guessed he was feeling the after-effects of our night's carousing, too. Sim, on the other hand, was bright and sunny as ever. Guess who drew slots this afternoon? He nodded over my shoulder. Ambrose and several of his friends. It's enough to make me believe in a just universe. Turning to search the crowd, I heard Ambrose's voice before I saw him. From the same bag, that means they did a piss-poor job mixing. They should restart this whole mismanaged sham, and... Ambrose was walking with several well-dressed friends, their eyes sweeping over the crowd, looking for raised hands. Ambrose was a dozen feet away before he finally looked down and realized the hand he was heading toward was mine. He stopped short, scowling, then gave a sudden barking laugh. You poor boy, all the time in the world and no way to spend it. Hasn't Lauren let you back in yet? Hammer and horn, Will said wearily behind me. Ambrose smiled at me. Tell you what, I'll give you halfpenny for and one of my old shirts for your slot. That way you'll have something to wear when you're washing that one in the river. A few of his friends chuckled behind him, looking me up and down. I kept my expression nonchalant, not wanting to give him any satisfaction. Truth was, I was all too aware of the fact that I only owned two shirts, and after two terms of constant wear they were getting shabby. Shabbier. What's more, I did wash them in the river, as I had never had money to spare for laundry. I'll pass, I said lightly. Your shirt tails are a, really, are a little richly dyed for my taste. I tugged at the front of my own shirt to make my point clear. A few nearby students laughed. I don't get it, I heard Sim say quietly to Will. He's implying Ambrose has the... Will, it paused. The tas, a disease you get from whores. There's a discharge. Okay, okay, Sim said quickly. I get it. Ugh. Ambrose is wearing green, too. Um... Meanwhile, Ambrose forced himself to chuckle along with the crowd at my joke. I suppose I deserve that, he said. Very well. Pennies for the poor. He brought out his purse and shook it. How much do you want? Five talents, I said. He stared at me, frozen in the act of opening his purse. He was an... It was an outrageous price. A few of the spectators nudged each other with their elbows, obviously hoping I'd somehow swindle Ambrose into paying several times what my slot was actually worth. I'm sorry, I asked. Do you need that converted? It was a well-known fact that Ambrose had botched the arithmetic portion of his admissions last term. Five is ridiculous, he said. You'd be lucky to get this you'd be lucky to get one this late in the day. I forced a careless shrug. I'd settle for four. You'll settle for one, Ambrose insisted. I'm not an idiot. I took a deep breath, laid it out again, and resigned. I don't suppose I could get you to go as high as one in four, I asked, disgusted how plaintive my voice sounded. Ambrose smiled like a shark. I'll tell you what, he said magnanimously. I'll give you one in three. I'm not above a little charity now and again. Thank you, sir, I said meekly. It's much appreciated. I could sense the crowd's disappointment as I rolled over like a dog for Ambrose's money. Don't mention it, Ambrose said smugly. Always a pleasure to help out the needy. 
In vintage coin, that'll be two nobles, six bits, two pennies, and four shims. I can do my own conversion, he snapped. I've traveled the world with my father's retinue since I was a boy. I know how money spends. Of course you do, I ducked my head. Silly of me. I looked up curiously. You've been to Modeg, then? Of course, he said absentmindedly as he proceeded to dig through his purse, pulling out an assortment of coins. I've actually been to High Court in Kershain. Twice. Is it true that the Modegan nobility regard haggling as a contemptible activity for those of any high-born station? I asked innocently. I heard that they consider it a sure sign that the person is either possessed of low blood or fallen on truly desperate times. Ambrose looked up at me, frozen halfway through the act of digging coins out of his purse. His eyes narrowed. Because if that's true, it's terribly kind of you to come down to my level just for the fun of a little bargain. I grinned at him. We rue loved Dicker. There was a murmur of laughter from the crowd around us. It had grown to several dozen people at this point. That's not it at all, Ambrose said. My face became a mask of concern. Oh, I'm sorry, my lord. I had no idea you'd come on hard times. I took several steps toward him, holding out my admission style. Here, you can have it for just half penny. I'm not above a little charity myself. I stood directly in front of him, holding out the tile. Please, I insist. It's always a pleasure to help the needy. Ambrose glared furiously. Keep it in choke, he hissed at me with a low voice. And remember this when you're eating beans and washing in the river. I'll still be here the day you leave with nothing but your hands in your pockets. He turned and left, the very picture of affronted dignity. There was a smattering of applause from the surrounding crowd. I took flourishing bows in all directions. How would you score that one? Will asked Sim. Two for Ambrose, three for Kvoth, Sim looked at me. Not your best work, really. I didn't get much sleep last night, I admitted. Every time you do this, it makes the eventual payback that much worse, Will said. We can't do anything but snap at each other, I said. The masters made sure of that. Anything too extreme would get us expelled for conduct unbecoming a member of the Arcanum. Why do you think I haven't made his life a hell? You're lazy, Will suggested. Laziness is one of my best characteristics, I said easily. If I weren't lazy, I might go through with the work of translating Edamete Tas and grow terribly offended when I discover it means the Edema Drip. I raised my hand again, thumb and middle finger extended. Instead, I'll assume it translates directly into the name of the disease Nemseria, thus preventing any unnecessary strain on our friendship. <laughs> what a jab. Quick tongue on that, lad. Okay. I eventually sold my slot to a desperate Rilar from the fishery named Jackson. I drove a hard bargain, trading him my slot for six shots and a favor to be named later. Admissions went about as well as could be expected, considering I couldn't study. Hem was still carrying his grudge. Lauren was cool. Elodin had his head down on the table and seemed to be asleep. My tuition was a full six talents, which put me in an interesting situation. The long road to Imre was mostly deserted. The sun brushed through the trees, and the wind carried just a hint of the cool that fall would soon be bringing. I headed to the Aeolian first to retrieve my loot. Stanchion had insisted that I leave it there last night, lest I break it on my lawn and inebriated walk home. As I approached the Aeolian, I saw Deok lounging against the doorpost, walking a coin across the back, uh, 
across the back knuckles of his hand. He smiled when he saw me. Oh, there. Thought you and your friends would end up in the river by the way you were weaving when you left last night. We were swaying in different directions, I explained, so it balanced out. Deok laughed. We've got your lady inside. I fought down a flush. And wondered how he had known I was hoping to find Den. Oh, sorry. I fought down. Let me start the whole sentence again. I realized there was an awkward pause there. We've got your lady inside. I fought down a flush and wondered how he had known I was hoping to find Denna here. I don't know if I would call her my lady. Exactly. Sovoy was my friend, after all. Uh, he shrugged. Whatever you call her. Stanchion's got her behind the bar. I'd go grab her before he gets overly familiar and starts practicing her, uh, his fingering. I felt a flash of rage and barely managed to swallow a mouthful of hot words. My loot? He's talking about my loot. I ducked inside quickly, guessing the less Deok saw of my expression, the better it would be. I wandered through the three levels of the Aeolian, but Denna was nowhere to be found. I did run into Count Threp, though, who enthusiastically invited me to have a seat. I don't suppose I might persuade you to pay me a visit at my house sometime. Threp asked bashfully. I'm thinking of having a little dinner, and I know a few people who would love to meet you. He winked. Word about your performance is already getting around. I felt a twinge of anxiety, but I knew rubbing elbows with the nobility was something of a necessary evil. I'd be honored to, my lord. Threp grimaced. Does it have to be my lord? Diplomacy is a large part of being a trooper. And a large portion of diplomacy is adherence to title and rank. Etiquette, my lord, I said regretfully. Piss on etiquette, Thrip said petulantly. Etiquette is a set of rules people use so they can be rude to each other in public. I was born uh, Danaeus first, Thrip second, and Count last of all. He looked imploringly up at me. Den, for short? I hesitated. Here, at least, he pleaded. It makes me feel like a weed in a flower bed when someone starts lording me here. I relaxed. If it makes you happy, Den... He flushed as if I'd flattered him. Tell me a bit about yourself, then. Where are you lodging? On the other side of the river, I said evasively. The bunks and mews were not exactly glamorous. When Threp gave me a puzzled look, I continued. I attend the university. The university? He asked, clearly puzzled. Are they teaching music now? I almost laughed at the thought. No, no, I'm in the Arcanum. I immediately regretted my words. He leaned back in his seat and gave me an uncomfortable look. You're a warlock? Oh, no, I said dismissively. I'm just studying, you know, grammar, mathematics. I picked two of the more innocent fields of study I could think of, and he seemed to relax a bit. I guess I'd just thought that you were... He trailed off and shook himself. Why are you studying there? The question caught me off guard. Uh, I, I've always wanted to. There's so much to learn. But you don't need any of that. I mean, he groped forwards. The way you play. Uh, surely your patron is encouraging you to focus on your music. I don't have a patron, Den, I said with a shy smile. Not that I'm opposed to the idea, mind you. His reaction was not what I expected. Damn my blackened luck. He slapped his hand on the table hard. I assumed someone was being coy, keeping you a secret. He thumped the table with his fist. Damn. 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 He recovered his composure a little and looked up at me. I'm sorry, it's just that... He made a frustrated gesture and sighed. Have you ever heard the saying, One wife, you're happy, two, you're tired. I nodded three, and they'll hate each other. Four, and they'll hate you, Threp finished. Well, the same thing is doubly true for patrons and their musicians. 
I just picked up my third, a struggling flutist. He sighed and shook his head. They bicker like cats in a bag, worried they're not getting enough attention. If only I'd known you were coming along, I would have waited. You flatter me, Den. I'm kicking myself is what I'm doing. He sighed and looked guilty. That's not fair. Sephron's good at what he does. They're all good musicians and overproductive of me, just like real wives. He gave me an apologetic look. If I try to bring you in, there'll be hell to pay. I've already had to lie about the little gift I gave you last night. So I'm your mistress, then. I grinned. Threp chuckled. Let's not carry the analogy too far. I'll be your matchmaker instead. I'll help you toward a pauper. Good gracious. Let me start over. Threp chuckled. Let's not carry the analogy too far. I'll be your matchmaker instead. I'll help you toward a proper patron. I know everyone with blood or money for fifty miles, so it shouldn't be that hard. That would be a great help, I said earnestly. The social circles on this side of the river are a mystery to me. A thought occurred to me. Speaking of which, I met a young lady last night and didn't find out much about her. If you're familiar with the town, I trailed off hopefully. He gave me a knowing look. Ah, I see. No, 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 I protested. She's the girl that sang along with me, my Halloween. I was just hoping to find her to pay my respects. Uh, Threp looked as if he didn't believe me, but wasn't going to make an issue of it. Fair enough. What's her name? Diane. Threp seemed to be waiting for more. That's all I know. Threp snorted. What did she look like? Sing it if you have to. I felt the beginning of a flush on my cheeks. She had dark hair to about here. I gestured a little lower than my shoulder with one hand. Young, fair skin. Threp watched me expectantly. Pretty. I see, Threp mused, rubbing his lips. Did she have her talent pipes? I don't know. Maybe. Does she live in the city? I shrugged. My ignorance again, feeling more and more foolish. Threp laughed. You're going to have to give me more than that. He looked over my shoulder. Wait, there's Deok. If anyone could spot a girl for you, it'd be him. He raised his hand. Deok! It's really not that important, I said hurriedly. Threp ignored me and waved the broad-shouldered man over to our table. Deok strolled over and leaned against the table. What can I do for you? Our young singer needs a little information about a lady he met last night. Can't say I'm surprised. There were quite a crop of lovelies out. One or two asked about you, he winked at me. Who caught your eye? It's not like that, I protested. She was the one who sang my harmony last night. She, has a, she had a lovely voice, and I was hoping to find her so we could do a little singing. I think I know the tune you're talking about, he gave me a broad knowing smile. I felt myself blushing furiously and began to protest again. Oh, settle down. I'll keep this one between my tongue and teeth. I'll even keep from telling Stanchion, which is good. Oh, sorry. I'll even, I'll even keep from telling Stanchion, which is as good as telling the whole town. He gossips like a schoolgirl when he's at a cup. He looked at me expectantly. She was slender, with deep coffee-colored eyes, I said, before I thought about how it sounded. I hurried on before either Threp or Deok could make a joke. Her name was Diane. Ah, Deok nodded slowly to himself, his smile going a little wry. I should have known. Does she live here? Threp asked. I don't believe I know her. You'd remember, Deok said, but no, I don't think she lives in town. I see her off and on. She travels, always here and gone again. He rubbed the back of his head and gave me a worried smile. 
I don't know where you might be able to find her. Careful, boy, that one will steal your heart. Men fall for her like wheat before a sickle blade. I shrugged as if such things couldn't be further from my mind, and was glad when Threp turned the topic to a piece of gossip about one of the local councilmen. I chuckled at their bickering until my drink was done, then made my farewells and took my leave of them. Half an hour later, I stood on the stairway outside Devi's door, trying to ignore the rancid smell of the butcher's shop below. I counted my money for the third time and thought about my options. I could pay off my entire debt and still afford tuition, but it would leave me penniless. I had other debts to settle as well, and as much as I wanted to be out from under Devi's thumb, I didn't relish starting the semester without a bit of coin in my pocket. The door opened suddenly, startling me. Devi's face peered out suspiciously through a narrow crack, then brightened with a smile when she recognized me. What are you looking? What are you look? <clears throat> Goodness, why can't I pronounce this? What are you lurking for? She asked. Gentlemen knock as a rule. She opened the door wide to let me in. Just weighing my options, I said, as she bolted the door behind me. Her room was much the same as before, save that today it smelled of cinnamon, not lavender. I hope I won't be inconveniencing you if I only pay the interest this term. Not at all, she said graciously. I like to think of it as an investment on my part. She gestured me toward a chair. Besides, it means I get to see you again. You'd be surprised how few visitors I get. It's probably your location more than your company, I said. She wrinkled her nose. I know, I settled here at first because it was cheap. Now I feel obliged to stay because my customers know to find me here. I laid two talents on the desk and slid them toward her. Do you mind a question? She gave me a look of impish excitement. Is it inappropriate? A bit, I admitted. Has anyone ever tried to report you? Well, now, she sat forward in her chair. That can be taken a number of different ways. She raised an eyebrow over one icy blue eye. Are you being threatening or curious? Curious, I said quickly. I'll tell you what. She nodded at my lute. Play me a song, and I'll tell you the truth. I smiled and unlatched the case, drawing out my lute. What would you like to hear? She thought for a minute. Can you play Leave the Town Tinker? I played it quick and easy. She came in enthusiastically on the chorus, and at the end she smiled and clapped like a young girl. Which, in hindsight, I guess she was. Back then she was an older woman, experienced and self-sure. I, on the other hand, was not quite sixteen. Once, she answered, as I put my lute away, two years ago a young gentleman, Elir, decided it would be better to inform the constable than to settle his debt. I looked up at her, and... And that was it. She shrugged carelessly. They came, asked me questions, searched the place, didn't find anything incriminating, of course. Of course. The next day, the young gentleman admitted the truth to the constable. He had made the whole story up because I had spurned his romantic advances. She grinned. The constable was not amused, and the gentleman was fined for slanderous action against the lady of the town. I couldn't help but smile. I can't say, as I'm terribly... I trailed off, noticing something for the first time. I pointed at her bookshelf. Is that Malkaf's The Basis of All Matter? Oh, yes, she said proudly. It's new, a partial repayment, she gestured toward the shelf. Feel free. 
I walked over and pulled it out. If I'd had this to study from, I wouldn't have missed one of the questions during admissions today. I'd think you'd have your fill of books at the archives, she said, her voice thick with envy. I shook my head. I was banned, I said. I've spent about two hours total in the archives, and half of that was getting thrown out on my ear. Devi nodded slowly. I'd heard, but you never know which rumors are true. We're in something of the same boat, then. I'd say you're slightly better off, I said, looking over the, her shelves. You've got Tecum here, and the Eroborica. I, uh, I scanned all the titles, looking for anything that might have information about the Amir or the Chandrian. But nothing looked especially promising. You've got the mating habits of the common Dracus, too. I was partway through reading that when I was kicked out. That's the latest edition, she said proudly. There's new engravings and a section on the Feyen Moite. I ran my fingers down the book's spine, then stepped back. It's a nice collection. Well, she said teasingly, if you promise to keep your hands clean, you could come over and do some reading now and again. If you bring your lute and play for me, I might even let you borrow a book or two, so long as you bring them back in a timely fashion. She gave me a winsome smile. We exiles should stick together. I spent the long walk back to the university wondering if Devi was being flirtatious or friendly. At the end of the three miles, I hadn't reached anything resembling a decision. I mentioned this to make something clear. I was clever, a burgeoning hero with an alar like a bar of Ramston steel. But first and foremost, I was a fifteen-year-old boy. When it came to women, I was as lost as a lamb in the woods. I found Kilvin in his office, etching rune... Okay, hold on. Having been a fifteen-year-old boy... Yeah, I had no fucking idea what I was doing. <sighs> I know the game a little better now. Although I wouldn't say I'm a giga-chad or anything like that. Um, I wouldn't even really lump myself in with any of the chads. But I know the game and recognize the signs. The uh, little signifying glances and what means what. I can guess with about, mm, I'd say, 80% accuracy. Better than I could do when I was 15. I had about 3% accuracy when I was, <laughs> when I was that young. I had no idea when a girl liked me or didn't. I found Kilvin in his office etching runes into a hemisphere of glass for another hanging lamp. I knocked softly on the open door. He glanced up at me. Ilir Kvoth, you are looking better. He took me a moment to it took me a moment to remember that he was speaking of three span ago when he banned me from my work at the fishery due to Willem's meddling. Thank you, sir. I feel better. He cocked his head minutely. I lowered one hand to my purse. I would like to resolve my debt to you. Kilvin grunted. You owe me nothing. He looked back down at the table at the project in his hands. My debt to the shop, then, I pressed. I have been taking advantage of your good nature for some time now. How much do I owe for the materials I've used during my studies with Monette? I'm sorry, with Monette. Kilvin continued to work. One talent, seven jots, and three. The exactness of the number startled me, as he hadn't checked the ledger in the storeroom. I boggled to think of everything the bear-like man was carrying around on his head. 
I took the appropriate amount from my purse and the co set the coins on a relatively clutter-free corner of the table. Kilvin looked at them. Illyric of Oath, I trust you came to this money honorably. His tone was so seriously... Sorry, his tone was so serious, I had to smile. I earned it playing an Imre last night. Music across the river pays this well. I held my smile and shrugged nonchalantly. I don't know if I'll do this well every night. This was only my first time, after all. Kilvin's made, Kilvin made a sound somewhere between a snort and a huff, and turned his eyes back to his work. Elksa Dal's pridefulness is rubbing off on you. He drew a careful line on the glass. Am I correct in assuming that you will no longer be spending evenings in my employ? Shocked, it took me a moment to catch my breath. I... I wouldn't... I came here to speak with you about... About coming back to work in the shop. The thought of not working for Kilvin hadn't crossed my mind. Apparently, your music has more profit than working here. Kilvin gave the coins on the table a significant look. But I want to work here, I said wretchedly. Kilvin's face broke into a great white smile. Good. I would not have wanted to lose you to the other side of the river. Music is a fine thing, but metal lasts. He struck the table with two huge fingers to emphasize his point. Then he made a shooing motion with the hand that held his unfinished lamp. Go, do not be late for work, or I will keep you polishing bottles and grinding ore for another turn. As I left, I thought about what Kilvin had said. It was the first thing he had said to me that I did not agree with wholeheartedly. Metal rusts, I thought. Music lasts forever. Time will eventually prove one of us right. After I left the fishery, I headed straight to the house, sorry, to the horse and four, arguably the best inn this side of the river. The innkeeper was a bald, portly fellow named Caverin. I showed him my talent pipes and bargained for a pleasant fifteen minutes. The end result was that, in exchange for playing three evenings a span, I received free room and board. The four's kitchens were remarkable, and my room was actually a small suite, bedroom, dressing room, and sitting room. A huge step up from my narrow bunk in the mews. But best of all, I would earn two silver talents every month. an almost ridiculous sum of money to someone who had been poor for as long as I had. And that was in addition to whatever gifts or tips the wealthy customers might give me. Playing here, working in the fishery, and with a wealthy patron on the horizon, I'd no longer be forced to live like a pauper. I'd be able to buy things I desperately needed, another suit of clothes, some decent pens and paper, new shoes... If you have never been desperately poor, I doubt you can understand the relief I felt. For months, I'd been waiting for the other shoe to drop, knowing that any small catastrophe could ruin me. But now I no longer had to live every day worrying about my next term's tuition or the interest on Devi's loan. I was no longer in danger of being forced out of the university. I had a lovely dinner of venison steak with a leaf salad and a bowl of delicately spiced tomato soup. There were fresh peaches and plums and white bread with sweet cream butter. Though I didn't even ask for it, I was served several glasses of an excellent dark vintage wine. 
Then I retired to my rooms, where I slept like a dead man, lost in the vastness of my new feather bed. 61. Jackass, Jackass. Let's see. This will probably be the last chapter, then. It's a bit of a long one. With admissions behind me, I had no responsibilities until fall term began. I spent the intervening days catching up on my sleep, working in Kilvin's shop, and enjoying my new luxurious accommodations at the Horse and Four. I also spent a considerable amount of time on the road to Imre, usually under the excuse of visiting Threp or enjoying the camaraderie of the other musicians of the Aeolian. But the truth behind the stories was that I was hoping to find Denna. But my diligence gained me nothing. She seemed to have vanished from the town completely. I asked a few people who I could trust not to make gossip of it, but none of them knew more than Diok. I briefly entertained the thought of asking Sovoy about her, but discarded it as a bad idea. After my sixth fruitless trip to Imre, I decided to abandon my search. After my ninth, I convinced myself it was a valuable waste. Uh, it was a waste of valuable time. After my fourteenth trip, I came to the deep realization that I wouldn't find her. She was well and truly gone again. It was during one of my Denna-less trips to the Aeolian that I received some troubling news from Count Threp. Apparently, Ambrose, firstborn of the wealthy and influential Baron Jackis, had been busy as a bee in the social circles of Imre. He had spread rumors, made threats, and generally turned the nobility against me. While he couldn't keep me from gaining the respect of my fellow musicians, apparently he could keep me from gaining a wealthy patron. It was my first glimpse of the trouble Ambrose could make for a person like me. Threp was apologetic and morose, while I seethed with irritation. Together we proceeded to drink an unwise amount of wine and grouse about Ambrose Jackis. Eventually, Threp was called up onto stage where he sang a scathing little ditty of, of his own design, satirizing one of Tarbine's councilmen. It was met with great laughter and applause. From there, it was a short step for us to begin composing a song about Ambrose. Threp was an inveterate gossip monger with a knack for tasteless innuendo. And I have always had a gift for a catchy tune. It took us under an hour to compose our masterwork, which we lovingly titled Jackass Jackass. On the surface, it was a ribald little tune about a donkey who wanted to be an arcanist. Our extraordinarily clever pun on Ambrose's surname was as close as we came to mentioning him, but anyone with half a wit could tell who the shoe was meant to fit. It was late when Threat and I took the stage, and we weren't the only ones worse for the drink. There was thunderous laughter and applause from the majority of the audience, who called for an encore. We gave it to them again, and everyone came in singing on the chorus. The key to the song's success was its simplicity. You could whistle or hum it. Anyone with three fingers could play it, and if you had one ear in a bucket, you could carry the tune. It was catchy and vulgar and mean-spirited. It spread through the university like a fire in a field. I tugged open the outer doors of the archives and stepped into the entry hall, my eyes adjusting to the red tint of the sympathy lamps. 
The air was dry and cool, rich with the smell of dust, leather, and old ink. I took a breath the way a starving man might outside a bakery. Willem was tending the desk. I knew he'd be working. Ambrose wasn't anywhere in the building. I'm just here to talk with Master Lauren. I said quickly. Will relaxed. He's with someone right now. It might be a while. A tall, lean, sealdish man opened the door behind the entry desk. Unlike most sealdish men, he was clean-shaven and wore his hair long and pulled back into a tail. He wore well-mended hunter's leathers and a faded traveling cloak and high boots, all dusty from the road. As he shut the door behind him, his hand went unconsciously to the hilt of his sword to keep it from striking the wall or the desk. Tatalia to Kiaru... No, sorry. Kiare Edan Asiath, he said in Siaru, clapping Willem on the shoulder as he walked out from behind the desk. Vorlin to Atatam. Willem gave a rare smile, shrugging. Sorry, Willem gave a rare smile, shrugging. Lin Sattva to Akverin. The man laughed, and as he stepped around the desk, I saw he wore a long knife in addition to his sword. Here in the archives, he looked as out of place as a sheep in the king's court, but his manner was relaxed, confident, as if he couldn't be more at home. He stopped walking when he saw me standing there. He cocked his head to the side a little. I didn't recognize the language. I beg your pardon? Oh, sorry, he said, speaking perfect Aterin. You looked Yilish. The red hair fooled me. He looked at me closer. But you're not, are you? You're one of the Rue. He stepped forward and held out his hand to me. One family. I shook it without thinking. His hand was solid as a rock, and his dark, sealedish complexion was tanned even darker than usual, highlighting a few pale scars that ran over his knuckles and up his arms. One family, I echoed, too surprised to say anything else. Folk from the family are a rare thing here, he said easily, walking past me toward the outer door. I'd stop and share news, but I've got to make it to Evesdown before sunset, or I'll miss my ship. He opened the outer door. Um, and sunlight flooded the room. I'll catch you up when I'm back in these parts, he said, and with a wave he was gone. I turned to Willem. Who was that? One of Lauren's gillers, Will said. Viari. He's a scriv, I said incredulously, thinking of the pale, quiet students who worked in the archives, sorting, scribing, and fetching books. Will shook his head. He works in acquisitions. They bring back books from all over the world. They're a different breed entirely. I gathered that, I said, glancing at the door. He's the one Lauren was talking to, so you can go in now, Will said, getting to his feet and opening the door behind the massive wooden desk. Down at the end of the hall, there's a brass plate on his door. I'd walk you back, but we're short-staffed. I can't leave the desk. I nodded and began walking... I began to walk down the hallway. I smiled to hear Will softly humming the melody from Jackass, Jackass, under his breath. Then the door gave a muffled thump behind me, and the hall was quiet, save for the sound of my own breathing. By the time I reached the appropriate door, my hands were clammy with sweat. I knocked. Enter, Lorne called from inside. His voice was like a sheet of smooth gray slate, without the barest hint of inflection or emotion. 
I opened the door. Lauren sat behind a huge semicircular desk. Shelves lined the walls from the floor to ceiling. The room was so full of books there wasn't more than a palm's breadth of wall visible in the entire room. Lauren looked at me coldly. Even sitting down, he was still nearly as tall as me. Good morning. I know I'm banned from the archives, Master, I said quickly. I hope that I am not violating that by coming to see you. Not if you are here to good purpose. I've come into some money, I said, pulling out my purse, and I was hoping to buy back my copy of Rhetoric and Logic. Lauren nodded and came to his feet. Tall, clean-shaven, and wearing his dark master's robes, he reminded me of the enigmatic silent doctor character present in many Modegan plays. I fought off a shiver, trying not to dwell on the fact that the appearance of the doctor always signaled catastrophe in the next act. Lauren went to one of the shelves and pulled out a small book. Even at a glimpse, I recognized it as mine. A dark stain patterned the cover, sorry, patterned the cover from the time it had gotten wet during a storm in Tarbine. I fumbled with the strings of my purse, surprised to see my hands trembling slightly. It was two silver pennies, I believe. Lauren nodded. Can I offer you anything in addition to that? If you hadn't bought it for me, I would have lost it forever, not to mention the fact that your purchase helped me gain admittance in the first place. Two silver pennies will be sufficient. I lay the coins on his desk. They clattered slightly as I set them down, testament to my shaking hands. Lauren held out the book, and I wiped my sweaty hands on my shirt before taking it. I opened it, Ben's inscription. I'm sorry, I opened it to Ben's inscription, and smiled. Thank you for taking care of it, Master Lauren. It is precious to me. The care of one more book is little trouble, Lauren said as he returned to his seat. I waited to see if he might continue. I, my voice snagged in my throat, I allowed to, I swallowed to clear it. I also wanted to say that I am, was sorry for, I stalled at the thought of actually mentioning open flame in the archives. For what I did before, I finished lamely. I accept your apology, Kvoth. Lauren looked back down at the book he had been reading when I had come in. Good morning. I swallowed again against the dryness in my mouth. I was also wondering when I might hope to regain admittance to the archives. Lauren looked up at me. You were caught with live fire among my books, he said, emotion touching the edges of his voice like a hint of red sunset against the slate-gray clouds. All of my carefully planned persuasion flew out of my head. Master Lauren, I pleaded, I'd been whipped that day and wasn't at my wit's best. Ambrose... Lauren raised his long-fingered hand from the desk, his palm facing out toward me. The careful gesture cut me off, more quickly than a slap across the face. His face was expressionless as a blank page. Who am I to believe? A Rillar of three years, or an Illyr of two months? A Scriv in my employ, or an unfamiliar student found guilty of reckless use of sympathy? I managed to regain a little of my composure. I understand your decision, Master Lauren, but is there anything I might do to earn readmittance? I asked, unable to keep my voice entirely free of desperation. Honestly, 
I would rather be whipped again than spend another term banned. I would give you all the money in my pocket, though it isn't much. I'd work long hours as a scriv without pay for the privilege of proving myself to you. I know you're short-staffed during exams. Lauren looked at me, his placid eyes almost curious. I couldn't help but feel that my plea had affected him. All that? All that, I said earnestly, hope billowing wildly through my chest. All that and any other penance you desire. I require but one thing to rescind my ban, Lauren said. I fought to keep a manic grin off my face. Anything. Demonstrate the patience and prudence which you have heretofore been lacking, Lauren said flatly, then looked down at his book that lay open on his desk. Good morning. The next day, one of Jameson's errand boys woke me out of a sound sleep in my vast bed at the horse and four. He informed me that I was due on the horns at a quarter hour before noon. I was being charged with conduct unbecoming a member of the Arcanum. Ambrose had finally caught the wind of my song. I spent the next several hours feeling vaguely sick to my stomach. This was exactly what I'd hoped to avoid, an opportunity for both Ambrose and Hem to settle scores with me. Worse still, this was bound to lower Lauren's opinion of me even further, no matter what the outcome. I arrived in the master's hall early, and was relieved to find the atmosphere much more relaxed than when I'd gone on the horns for malfeasance against Hem. Arwell and Elxidal smiled at me. Kilvin nodded. I was relieved that I had friends among the masters to balance out the enemies I'd made. Listen, man. You gotta have, like, ten friends to one enemy. If they're all of the same social standing. Let's see. Uh... All right, the Chancellor said briskly. We've got ten minutes before we start admissions. I don't feel like getting behind schedule, so I'm going to move this right along. He looked around at the rest of the Masters and saw only nods. Rilar Ambrose, make your case. Keep it under a minute. You have a copy of the song right there, Ambrose said hotly. It's slanderous. It defames my good name. It's, shameful. it's a shameful way for a member of the Arcanum to behave. He swallowed his... Ah, uh, his jaw clenching. That's all. The Chancellor turned to me. Uh, sorry, the Chancellor turned to me. Anything to say in your defense? It was in poor taste, Chancellor, but I didn't expect it to get around. I only sang it on one occasion, in fact. Fair enough, the Chancellor looked down at the paper in front of him. He cleared his throat. Rilar Ambrose, are you a donkey? Ambrose went stiff. No, sir, he said. Are you possessed of... He cleared his throat and read directly off the page. A pizzle bound to fizzle. A few of the masters struggled to control smiles. Elodin grinned openly. Ambrose flushed. No, sir. Let's see. Um... Sorry, I lost my place. Uh, are you possessed of a pizzle bound to fizzle? Uh, no, sir. Then I'm afraid I don't see the problem, the Chancellor said curtly, letting the paper settle to the table. 
I move the charge of conduct unbecoming be replaced with undignified mischief. Seconded, Kilvin said. All in favor? All hands went up except for Hems and Brandures. Motion passed. Discipline will be set at a formal letter of apologizing a formal letter of apology tendered to for god's sake arthur hem broke in at least make it a public letter chancellor glared at hem then shrugged formal letter of apology posted publicly before the fall term all in favor all hands were raised motion passed the chancellor leaned forward onto his elbows and looked down at ambrose rilar ambrose in the future you will refrain from wasting our time with spurious charges I could feel the anger radiating off Ambrose. It was like standing near a fire. Yes, sir. Before I could feel smug, the Chancellor turned to me, and you, Illyric both, will comport yourself with more decorum in the future. His stern words were somewhat spoiled by the fact that Elodin had begun cheerfully humming the melody to Jackass Jackass next to him. I lowered my eyes and did my best to fight down a smile. Yes, sir dismissed. Ambrose turned on his heel and stormed off, but before he made it through the door, Elodin burst out singing, He's a well-bred ass, you can see it in his stride, and for a copper penny he will let you take a ride. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. The thought of writing a public apology was galling to me, but as they say, the best revenge is living well, so I decided, so I decided to ignore Ambrose and enjoy my new luxurious lifestyle at the horse and four. But I only managed two days of revenge. On the third day, the horse and four had a new owner. Short, jolly Keverin was replaced by a tall, thin man who informed me that my services were no longer required. I was told to vacate my rooms before nightfall. It was irritating, but I knew of at least four or five inns of a similar quality on this side of the river that would jump at the chance to employ a musician with his talent pipes. But the innkeeper at Hollybrush refused to speak with me. The White Hart and Queen's Crown were content with their current musicians. At the Golden Pony, I waited for over an hour before I realized I was being politely ignored. By the time I tur was turned away by the Royal Oak, I was fuming. It was Ambrose. I didn't know how he'd done it, but I knew it was him. Bribes, perhaps, or a rumor that any inn employing a certain red-haired musician would be losing the business of a large number of wealthy noble customers. So I began working my way through the rest of the inns this side of the river. I'd already been turned away by the upper-class ones, but there were many respectable ones left. Over the next several hours I tried the shepherd's rest, the boar's head, dog in the wall, staves in, and the tabard. Ambrose had been very thorough. None of them were interested. It was early evening by the time I came to Anchors, and by that time the only thing keeping me going was pure black temper. I was determined to dry, try every single inn on this side of the river before I resorted to paying for a bunk and a meal chit again. When I came to the inn, Anchor himself was up on a ladder nailing a long piece of cedar siding back into place. He looked down at me as I came to stand near the foot of the ladder. Beg your pardon. Oh, let's see. Near the foot of the ladder. So you're the one, he said. Beg your pardon? I said, puzzled. Fellow stopped by and told me that hiring a young red-haired fellow would make for a great pile of unpleasantness. He nodded at my loot. You must be him. Well, then, I said, adjusting the shoulder strap of my loot case, I won't waste your time. 
You aren't wasting it yet, he said as he climbed down the ladder, wiping his hands on his shirt. The place could use some music. I gave him a searching look. Aren't you worried? He spat. Damn little gadflies think they can buy the sun out of the sky, don't they? This particular one could probably afford it, I said grimly, and the moon too if he wanted the matched set to use as bookends. He snorted derisively. He can't do a damn thing to me. I don't cater to his sort of folk, so he can't scare off my business. And I own this place my own self, so he can't buy it and fire me like he did to that poor old cavern. Someone bought the horse and four? Anchor gave me a speculative look. You didn't know? I shook my head slowly, taking a moment to digest this piece of information. Ambrose had bought the horse and four just to spite me out of a job. No, he was too clever for that. He had probably loaned the money to a friend and passed it off as a business venture. How much has it had it cost? A thousand talents? Five thousand? I couldn't even guess how much an inn like the horse and four was worth. And what was even more disturbing was how quickly he had managed it. It put things in sharp perspective for me. I'd known Ambrose was rich, but honestly, everyone was rich compared to me. I'd never bothered thinking about how wealthy he was, or how he could use it against me. I was getting a lesson in the sort of influence a wealthy baron's firstborn son could bring to bear. For the first time, I was glad for the university's strict code of conduct. If Ambrose was willing to go to these lengths, I can only imagine what drastic measures he would take if he didn't need to maintain a semblance of civility. I was jolted out of my reverie by a young woman leaning out of the front door of the inn. Damn you, Anchor, she shouted. I'm not going to pull and carry while you stand out here scratching your ass. Get in here. Anchor muttered something under his breath. As he picked up the ladder and stowed it around the corner in the alleyway. What did you do to this fellow, anyway? Top his mum? Wrote a song about him, actually. As Anchor opened the door of the inn, a gentle welter of conversation poured out in, onto the street. I'd be curious to hear a song like that, he grinned. Why don't you come give it a play? If you're sure, I said, not quite believing my luck, there's bound to be trouble. Trouble, he chuckled. What does a boy like you know about trouble? I was in trouble before you were born. I've been in trouble you don't even got words for. He turned to face me, still standing in the doorway. It's been a while since we've had music in here regular. Can't say as I like to go without. A proper tavern has music. I smiled. I have to agree with you there. Truth is, I'd have you in just to twist that rich tit's nose, Anchor said. But if, I, if you can play worth half a damn, he pushed the door open farther, making it an invitation, I could smell sawdust and honest sweat and baking bread. By the end of the night, it was all, well, it, it was all arranged. In exchange for playing four nights a span... I earned a tiny room on the third floor, and the assurance that if I was around at mealtimes I would be welcome to a bit of whatever was cooking in the pot. Admittedly, Anchor was getting the services of a talented musician for a bargain price, but it was a deal I was happy to make. Anything was better than going back to Muse and the silent scorn of my bunkmates. The ceiling of my tiny room slanted downward in two corners, making it seem even smaller than it really was. It would have been cluttered if there had been more than a few sticks of furniture, a small desk with a wooden chair and a single shelf above it, 
The bed was flat and narrow as any bunk in the muse. I set my slightly battered copy of Rhetoric and Logic on the shelf over the desk. My loot case leaned comfortably in the corner. Through the window, I could see the lights of the university, unblinking in the cool autumn air. I was home. Looking back, I count myself lucky that I ended up in Anchors. True, the crowds were not as wealthy as those at the Horse and Four, but they appreciated me in a way the nobles never had. And while my suite of rooms at the Horse and Four had been luxurious, my tiny room at Anchors was comfortable. Think in terms of shoes. You don't want the biggest you can find. You want the pair that fits. In time, that tiny room at Anchors came to be more of a home to me than anywhere else in the world. But at that particular moment, I was furious at what Ambrose had cost me. So when I sat down to write my public letter of apology, it dripped with venomous sincerity. It was a work of art. I beat my breast with remorse. I wailed and gnashed my teeth over the fact that I had maligned a fellow student. I also included a full copy of the lyrics, along with two new verses and a full, mu and full musical notation. I then apologized in excruciating detail about every vulgar, petty innuendo included in the song. I then spent four precious jots of my own money on paper and ink, and called in the favor of Jackson owed me for trading him my late admission slot. He had a friend that worked in a print shop, and with his help we printed over a hundred copies of the letter. Then, the night before fall term began, Will, Sim, and I posted them on every flat surface we could find on both sides of the river. We used a lovely alchemical adhesive Simon had cooked up for the occasion. The stuff went on like paint, then dried clear as glass and hard as steel. If anyone wanted to remove the posts, they'd need a hammer and chisel. In hindsight, it was a foolish. Sorry, in hindsight, it was as foolish as taunting an angry bull. And if I had to guess, I'd say this particular piece of insolence was the main reason Ambrose eventually tried to kill me. Oh goodness gracious, man! You don't know when to leave well enough alone. This is not going to earn you any favor with Lauren. <sighs> Master Lauren is right to say you need patience. And as a man who was once a 15-year-old boy, patience is not the strong suit when you are that age. Reckless self-endangerment is more the speed of someone in the, that, that particular walk of life. All right. That's all for tonight. So good night, everyone, and uh, come back tomorrow for more books at bedtime.